Before we dive in, I'd like to welcome you to the Abundantly Curious podcast, where we aim to spark curiosity, ignite inspiration, and open your mind to expand into possibility. Each week, we'll sit down with experts to dive headfirst into the magical, mysterious, and awe-inspiring elements of our world with a focus on topics found at the intersection of science, spirituality, and self-help. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting subscribe now and joining our email list at the link in our show description and show notes. Our guest today is Mark Merriweather Vorderbruggen, PhD, who is often described as a scientist raised by wolves. Having a Master of Science in Medicinal Chemistry and a PhD in Physical Organic Chemistry, he brings science into the world of wild, edible, and medicinal plants. On the science side, he has 16 patents and numerous articles in research journals from his career as a research chemist. But his true love is plants and the miracles they contain. Since 2008, his website, foragingtexas.com, has been one of the top wild, edible, and medicinal plant sites on the internet. He has written countless foraging articles for a wide variety of magazines, taught hundreds of foraging walkabouts, appeared on radio, TV, and podcasts galore, along with writing the acclaimed plant book, Idiot's Guide Foraging and Outdoor Adventures Guide Foraging. In 2020, he made the biggest leap of his life to become the medicine man for Medicine Man Plant Co., where he can finally bring forth the ancient plants that can still help with modern issues. Merriweather, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for giving me a pulpit to preach from. (laughs) (laughs) So excited to have you here. To kick us off, would you mind giving us a little bit of background on you and share some of your journey that led you to where you are today? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So to understand me, you have to understand my family and my parents and grandparents and all that. So both my parents were children of the Great Depression. One of the ways the small farming communities up in Minnesota, where I'm from, got through that terrible time was the knowledge of wild edible plants and medicinal plants. Uh, My mom hates the fact that I teach these classes and write these books and do all this stuff. She's horribly embarrassed by it. It's like, they'll know we were poor. It's like, it's okay, mom. (laughs) But uh, to continue on the family side, my older brother is 10 months older than me. My younger brother is 13 months younger than me. So we have what they called Irish triplets. My parents quickly (laughs) realized the only way they can survive three young boys is to drag them off into the woods, at least for an hour a day, usually more, and just wear us out. And so they send it off collecting all these different plants and stuff that we would then just use in our food. It never occurred to me that other people didn't know this knowledge until really when I moved down to Texas after finishing my, my college career, moved down to Texas because I hated snow and started up a website devoted to outdoor activities, hiking, backpacking, kayaking, that sort of thing. And in my posts on that, occasionally I'd mentioned some of the different edible medicinal plants I was finding and mushrooms. And those posts are what really got people interested. And so people started contacting me and say, hey, we're going camping next weekend. Do you want to come with? And it's like, yeah, sure, let's go. And I just started teaching them that. Uh, this is all concurrent with my, my industrial chemist career. In fact, I kept the, the, the plant side of my life secret, kind of. They, they didn't know I was out teaching people all these edible medicinal plants. What they knew is I was an expert in natural products 
and using the solutions that nature had already come up with to solve industrial issues they were having. So I got good enough where they basically gave me my own little group. We called it the Skunk Works, if you know, little, little Abner cartoons. Uh, it was like disruptive technology based on nature to make more environmentally friendly type stuff. That's what all my patents are. My first one was using yeah. cinnamon for corrosion inhibitor. Uh, the last ones while I was still there was coming up with an easy environmentally friendly way to wrap sand in mother of pearl to prevent it from breaking apart, releasing fine dust that leads to uh, silicosis. So just, mm. just, you know, things like that. Biomimicry, you know, nature has had spent a lot of time solving problems. Anyway, back to the plant stuff. Uh, in 2008, the Houston Arboretum contacted me and said, hey, we hear you teach wild edible plant classes. Will you do it for us? And so I taught one in the fall of 2008, two in the spring of 2009, and then it became a monthly class up until COVID struck. It was one of the top fundraisers actually for the, the, the Houston Arboretum, but the demand was so big. And from there, it just exploded and took over my life. And now I hardly have time to go out in the woods and actually play around and do my <laughs> own thing. But like I said, it led to books and it led to magazine. I write for Texas Gardener. I do all these different things. And at one point, NPR did a interview of me and I figured, okay, no one at my company listens to NPR. Come in the next day and there's a bunch of weeds taped to my door and the words, your secret is out. And then I got called in for random drug testing <laughs> and past that and then just continued on normal. But it really was in 2019 where the startup company, Medicine Man Plant Co., was looking for the herbalist to be it. They had a guy with a lot of money who really believes in this. There was a guy with a lot of business sense, but they needed the herbalist. They needed a guy. And through a random interaction, bouncing around, suddenly I was in their spotlight. And it's like, would you be our medicine man? And it's like, that's what I've always wanted to do. And that's mm. pretty awesome feeling. Mm. It's really interesting to me how what was originally something done out of necessity has alchemized <laughs> into a passion and something that you can do as a living. Yeah. It, and you mentioned that you kept this as a secret for a while. Uh, and I know for myself, I only just recently discovered, you know, shows like alone. <laughs> so I'm wondering if there's anything culturally that has happened that has made you feel more open about. There is. Work. And so if you look back at literature, there's like Robinson Crusoe and Swiss Family Robinson. So there was some there, but it was really people like Les Stroud and Michael Hawk that started bringing these living off the land, wilderness adventure, survival things. And then Survivor showed up back in the mm. early 90s. Uh, but that was a crap show. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. They're not really surviving there. <laughs> But yeah, but that, that has really brought it. But then the whole COVID thing, when people started realizing maybe this complicated world we've built isn't as secure as we thought it was. And so that was really when things exploded. I had been popular before then, but when COVID hit, uh, a lot of the parks and museums and stuff that uh, would bring me in to teach, they had to shut it down. They, you know, they were shut down. People go, well, wait, wait, now is when we need it. Why, why are you canceling the classes? So people have realized. And mm -hmm. I mean, to me, the, I grew up in a family that suffered through the Great Depression. 
And so the lessons they learned during that, I mean, our basement, my folks, they're, they're in their 80s. They're still freezing the food, still dead, still hunts and fishes. The freezer is filled with the fish and the meat, the things you need to, to survive when you don't have money to go to the store. And I've taken it back even farther that I look at my yard and go, I got food here. I'm good. Oh, economic crashes too. Whenever people mm. are trying to save money, suddenly they're looking at their yard and going, I wonder if I can eat that. We used to eat stuff here. I wonder what this is. And so if you do Google Trends, foraging and the current economic climate, they track really well. <laughs> so people mm. have realized that there's an option there. There's yeah. food there. There's medicine there. There's maybe, maybe I can save a little money by doing this. Hmm. You mentioned the past few years and the realization that I think they brought a lot of us, which is that the stability and consistency that we had experienced for quite some time is not unbreakable mm-hmm. <laughs> and that things can be disrupted. Um, there's this theory that I just think is an interesting idea, an interesting thought exercise that basically if you know the authorities that be can exercise such rules and laws in order to prevent the spread of a virus, it's not so far outside the realm of possibility that they could also perhaps do something uh, to prevent the spread of a computer virus in terms of shutting down the internet mm-hmm. and electricity. And I think about that and I'm just like, how would all these people in cities survive? (laughs) So just as a fun hypothetical, what would you recommend to people? Okay. First, (laughs) outdoor adventure guide foraging. So multiple plans, big pictures. If there's a mimic, there's North American map. You know, you can see where it Uh is. So it's designed for all of North America. But The average city in the United States has about three days of food for everyone in the city. Uh, You look really young. So back in the the early 2000s, the gasoline prices had shot up really high again. At the time, Houston's mayor was a man by the name of Bill White. And he came from industry, in particular logistics. And so he really understood how fragile this was, how fragile getting food into Houston is. And so one of the things when those prices started going, you know, through the roof for the, the gasoline prices, that meant that, you know, it's more expensive to, to ship trucks of food in and so forth. Anyway, there was talk of setting up some infomercials of using me to show what plants around you are edible as a way of, of helping with that. Cause after three days and, and, you know, Three days after the end of the food, you've suddenly just, you know, fallen into a Mad Max sort of world. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so something to keep in mind there. But the thought was, you know, there's food around us that we just don't realize it anymore. And how can we help the people recognize this food? It just keeps coming around and around and around again. As we get more yeah. complex, it gets more fragile. And finally, people understand that. For a while, they thought, you know, Technology was a miracle and unbreakable, and we're in heaven now. <laughs> we figured that one was wrong. Yeah. I imagine it varies by the region that you're in, but just to have some specificity to it, are there any specific plants that are most likely to be found in cities and metros? Oh, okay. Here's a great question. Let, let's turn this around a little. And if you want to learn the wild edible plants in your area, how do you go about doing it? You don't 
and I'm, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot. You don't just grab this book and start wandering around your neighborhood looking for the plants in this book. What you do is you step out on your doorstep, you look at the trees, you start with the trees, identify the trees. <laughs> what trees do I have? There are a number of plant identification apps on your phone. You can get, they suck for weeds and a lot of landscaping plants, but they do really well on trees. So mm -hmm. you figure out what trees you have. Then, oh, let's say you look them up in my book and say, oh, wow. So a pine tree, I can eat the inner bark of a pine tree. It's five to 600 calories per pound. Calories are good. All right. We got food there. The, the, the pine needles are loaded with vitamin C. The pine cone seeds are loaded with protein. I got a lot of food here. The pollen can be used as a flower substitute. All right, I got food. What other trees do I have? Oh, I have an oak tree. Oh, I have a maple tree. And you, know, you figure out what the trees are. When you're doing that, you get that immediate reward, that dopamine hit. Hey, I got some stuff here. I know what I'm doing. So you figure out the trees. What are the edible medicinal uses of them? Then you look at all your landscaping plants. If you don't know what the plant is, take a picture of it, go to the local nursery, say, what is this plant? Ah, it's an Eleagnus. Thank you. You go home, you look it up on the end. Ah, Eleagnus, edible berries. Cool. So you go through and identify the plants right around you, whether it be, you know, in your yard, in your apartment complex's courtyard, just the things you see lining the city streets. A lot of the trees that are used in, in, in the cities have food possibilities, people just don't realize it. But you, you start with what you can already see rather than looking for mystery plants. Because if you just mm. go out looking for lamb's quarter or curled dock or something like that, it's a crapshoot. So just start where you're at, identify the plants. After you've done the trees and the landscaping plants and you're starting to build up uh, the, the vocabulary of plant identification, then you can start looking at the weeds I'll tell you, Monsanto, and people hate it when I bring this up, Monsanto had, and I haven't checked it in a while, but they had a wonderful uh, part on their website for weed identification with the thought that you would use their services to identify the weeds and then you would use their products to kill the weeds as opposed to using a fork and a knife and maybe some curry sauce. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, things like that. So you you start with, the things that will give you the dopamine hits, because dopamine is very important in our lives. And you work your way down to now, ooh, a mystery. What is this? Can I eat it? I, you know, you're excited. You already have these wins behind you. So you're not completely frustrated. And, hmm. you know, people get frustrated. And when they get frustrated, they stop. And so by giving them these easy wins to begin with, it, it staves off the frustration. And they've identified a bunch of plants that they can eat or use as medicine already. Or you know, are poisonous, which is also important to know. That feels so applicable to so many different things. Give yourself the dopamine hit of some easy wins of the biggest things in front of you so you can actually stick with it yep, exactly. and learn something. I love that. And the irony of technology <laughs> and apps and taking photos being a part of that hypothetical apocalyptic yeah. experience is funny. So it just reminds us the importance of books yes. and having paper and, and I, having I, things. Yeah, I have a huge library of plant identification books and botanical records and all this sort of stuff. Y'all got it easy nowadays. You can actually do a like yellow flower Texas Google image search and just scroll. Oh, that looks like it there. I had to know what I was doing to learn. <laughs> so in your bio, it mentions the miracle of plants. And as a scientist and also as someone who has deep roots in this, how would you describe that miracle of plants? 
oh man, if you don't get it, you don't get it. I'm trying to think of the best way to answer this. Let's go back to my industrial career. So mm-hmm. this is going to be kind of a stream of consciousness sort of thing here. But yeah. once you start understanding the chemistry of plants and what they're doing, you realize plants are very lazy. They have a certain amount of energy and they can only spend it in a certain amount of way. So they often find the easiest way of accomplishing a task. They're basically like they're all teenage kids. So the, what that leads to then is the actual molecules in them. They may look really complicated and all sorts of stuff going on, but once you know the building blocks that the plants use, you see, it's like Legos. You have, you know, this type of Lego and that type of Lego, and you click them together in an infinite different variety of ways. But once you understand the Legos, now when it comes to making complex molecules in industry, you already have this Lego set ready to go. And you can just copy what the plants did. You're coming up with an, a different product, but you have a much easier path. One of the professors, the organic chemistry professor, he was actually a Nobel Prize winning scientist. All his tests were, he gave us like 12 molecules and he said, starting from acetylene, which is just two carbons with three bonds between it, how do you make this big complex molecule? You had to know what you were doing, but that's when I realized that's not what nature does. (laughs) Nature figures out how to come up with the solution using these Lego bricks and snap these together to now it can do this. And so that's what I've tried to emulate. And nature has been around for 4 billion years, basically. It's had to solve a lot of problems. And so when I look at nature, okay, you've seen the movie, The Matrix. Yes. Okay. So when they're in the real world and they're looking at the computer screens and there's just these green lines going down the screen, when I'm looking at plants, that's almost what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing the plants anymore. I'm seeing the makeup, the chemistry and the chemical reactions. It's like the whole world has been reduced to its component parts now. It's amazing how complicated it is. Uh, I used to have my own podcast. And one of the episodes I did was tracing a grain of sand all the way back to the Big Bang and everything Mm -hmm. that occurred each step of the way. And what had to occur, all these amazing things just to make an inorganic, non-sentient grain of sand. And then when you think about a living thing, it's just, (laughs) it just boggles my mind how truly amazing you know, a leaf is and what it's doing. And it's doing so much more than any human factory could ever do. I just stand in awe. Mm, that was the word that came to mind as you were explaining it. This clearly is awe right here and as nature so often brings. So I'm curious with awe and wonder in that sense, if there's anything that's actually spiritual about this for you. Very much so. I am unabashedly Catholic. And so I, I believe in creation. And I don't know if you've been following the James Webb telescope, but there's some really weird things they're discovering. And if I get too technical, we can just edit this out. But you might have heard from the Big Bang, everything is rushing away. Everything is moving at a very Mm -hmm. high rate of speed. And so there's a thing called the redshift. 
Uh, if you're in your car, a train is coming and the train whistle sounds different as it's approaching and as it's going away. Because that's the waves, the sound waves through the air. As the train is approaching, these waves are compressed because they're coming towards you. But as it's going away, they're stretched out some. Light mm. does the same thing. They call it the, the blue shift and a red shift. If something is rushing at you at you know really high speeds, it will have a slight blue tinge because the frequency of the waves are hitting your eyeballs more rapidly. But if it's moving away, it's red shifted because the light waves are being kind of stretched out. Astronomy, they've known this for 50, 100 years, basically. So early studies of the universe showed that everything was moving away from each other and expanding. But now with the James Webb, they're looking at you know as far away as we can see, and they're going, wait a minute, there's no redshift here. There's actually a lot of the redshift we thought we saw might not actually have been accurate. Everything just seems to be placed in a spot and it's not expanding or contracting. This goes against everything we believe. And it's really caused a lot of consternation amongst the astrophysicists. It's like, how could everything just be you know, here? It has to start and go. And they're, they're very upset by this. <laughs> <laughs> that dismantles a lot. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, exactly. It's a bigger, I don't want to say bigger threat to understanding, but a bigger twist than going from Newtonian physics to Einsteinian physics, the, mm. you know, quantum mechanics and all that sort of thing. It just has a lot of people going, I don't understand. And all our Catholics are going. <laughs> what is the tie to that in the Catholic? So it, it, it basically, it just, let there be light and the universe appear. I did, you know, Christianity in general, and it all just appeared as is. I still believe in evolution and all that stuff. Don't get me wrong, but it's interesting. The other theory, though, and there's some really good proof on this, is this universe isn't real. It is just like a holographic projection of some other universe or maybe even a video game in some supercomputer. Because one of the things the scientists have found is as they get close to the edges of things, things get fuzzy and suddenly get undefined and there aren't hard edges and they're going, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't making sense. And so there's like Elon Musk, he believes that this universe is just a holographic image of either some other universe or just a video game and some giant other, you know, upper level creation type creature type thing. In the end, I got plants. Plants are fascinating. <laughs> Whatever it is, I'm just going to enjoy. And, you know, when we die, we'll find out. Either we just blip out or we go, oh, crap, I should have done things differently or, you know. But, yeah. but for now, I just yeah. look at the, I hate to use the word machinery, but we'll use the word, the machinery mm. inside a leaf is astounding. The machinery inside of any cell our brain cells, our muscle, any of that. It's so complex. It's so beautiful. <laughs> and they've shown the more time you spend out in nature, and this actually upsets people, the more you start to think, maybe this wasn't random. This is, everything works together so perfectly. But I don't know. That's for wiser people than me to decide. <laughs> 
as a chemist, you see the way things are constructed and there's something about these crystalline objects. What have you seen in terms of the beauty and just like the patterning at the uh, smallest levels of nature? Okay. So if you want to understand a crystal, imagine a chain link fence where you have a repeating unit. That's what it means to be crystal. If it doesn't have a repeating unit, it's a crystalline. It's not crystalline, but a crystalline is just a repeating unit. And usually the entire universe is trying to find the lowest energy form to take. Like if you have a canister with a chunk of dry ice in the bottom, dry ice, you know, it's frozen carbon dioxide at standard temperature and pressure. It instead of melts into a liquid and then evaporates like water does, it goes straight from the solid to a gas form. It's called sublimation. If you've ever sealed up some dry ice in a, in a two liter bottle and thrown it behind your neighbor's house and five minutes later you get a, like a huge kaboom, it's because that dry ice is converted to gas. The gas takes up a lot more space. The strength of the two liter bottle is such that it can't contain that gas and it blows up in a very satisfying boom. When it's sublimating, the natural drive is for that gas to then disperse between the other gas molecules that are already there. It doesn't just sit at the bottom. So when you combine two gases, they will flow and mix together. They won't just stay separate unless there's some huge density things. That's the same with everything in the world, like putting sugar into water. It doesn't stay as a cube. It dissolves. It's a lower energy to be a random mass than this crystal. Yet under so many conditions, the crystal is low. So what it boils down to is a paradox mm. that it's either uniform or completely chaotic. To truly understand things, we have to be able to hold two conflicting ideas in our head at the same time. Mm. Yes. Uh, you might have heard the particle duality of the electron. So uh, electrons, if you measure them as a wave, like electromagnetic wave, they act like a wave. If you measure them as a particle, they act like a particle. This means they are not a wave and not a particle. There's some other thing we don't understand because if something is a wave, it can't be a particle. And if something's a particle, it can't be a wave. But it's both. What's going on? And this has been driving people insane now for 80 or more years. And there's so many of these conundrums out there. And nature just points them out even more. Like photosynthesis. Hey, can you do this? I bet you can't. You know, I can take sunlight and carbon dioxide and make a tree. We don't know how to do that. Not at the efficiency that a tree can. So it just leaves you again going, wow. This universe is way more complex than I thought it was. And mm. some people just go, you know what? I'm just going to go in and watch TikTok videos now. And others go, <laughs> I want to know more. And I, I feel like I got way off topic here. <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, this is the stuff that I'm so excited about. There was a time, and maybe it's been throughout all of history. I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> but where we feel, in my opinion, a little overconfident in our level of knowledge especially in science, like uh, Bill Bryson's book, A mm. Short History of Nearly oh, Everything. Oh, I love that and book. 
Yes. Me too. Uh, reading that book, I was just like, oh my God, at every single point in history, we've thought that we knew we had it figured out. And, mm. and I think we think that right now. Oh, very and much yet so. we know barely anything about quantum physics. And there's probably other sides of things that we haven't even explored, other areas of science. And so to just explore that area of like, we could be right, we could be wrong. It's so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a saying that's been going around right now. It's better to have questions without answers than answers that can't be questioned. And I feel mm. like right now we are yeah. in, you cannot question this answer. And that's a terrible time to be it. Ooh, I just got chills and I'm writing down that time because I'm going to use that quote in the marketing. <laughs> All right. Yes. It's not mine. I stole it from elsewhere. But yeah. Beautiful. So I'm going to throw you a curveball here. Um, it just came up while you were talking about crystals. I'm curious to know if there is any science that supports the potential healing properties of crystal structures. <laughs> Very weak at best. But here's the strong science in it. One thing that's been shown over and over with humans is we respond really well to rituals. Think mm -hmm. athletes, like a, a professional batter going up to bat and he does certain things. And what this does is it programs the mind to be ready for what's coming next. And in that case, mm -hmm. the ball coming, you know, it's like... I don't want to say a Zen trance, but it basically primes the mind to respond. Let's say in the case of healing with crystals, the brain itself and the body itself has some amazing abilities to heal itself. And you've heard of the placebo effect. Yeah. You know, and, and scientists have used the placebo effect to cure people just because it's easier and cheaper. I used to do it myself, but they'd have like some sugar tablets. They say, okay, kid, take two of these a day and you'll get better and that the mind over matter sort of thing. The immune system is greatly dependent on the stress levels in the brain and the higher the stress levels, the weaker the immune system, the weaker the healing process in general, because the brain is going, I need to store energy to fight this threat. So if you get something that says healing will partake, the stress of that healing will go down and the body, it gets out of its own way. Over and over, they've shown rituals help. Like if you're cooking supper and you're just preparing supper for your family, I have certain things that you know I do. It just puts me in the cooking zone and the food turns out better. Instead of worrying about other stuff, you know, it's not casting a spell, it's just getting in the zone. And that has so much power, way more power than most people understand. Mm. So I'm a big fan of finding rituals you can add to your day because they will make your day better. They will make your day healthier. It'll make your day more productive because it gets you in that mindset. And we have amazing minds. The human mind is just astounding. And once we start focusing it, it becomes even more so. What is the most fascinating healing property or medicinal value of a plant you've seen? Oh, man. There's so many possibilities. It's like, which is your favorite child? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> okay, so let's go back some. We evolved in a very different world than the world we live in now. Our amazing brain has allowed us to take a lot of stuff out that we thought was causing problems. 
and we focused on a very synthetic world. If you look at the FDA regulations, they say you need 180 milligrams of vitamin C every day. Scientists have figured out you need these nutrients at these levels to remain healthy. Well, what they're saying is if you drink those specific vitamins and minerals over a very short period of time, you will start showing health issues, you know, like vitamin C, scurvy. Everyone hears about scurvy because vitamin C, one of the things vitamin C is, is it's the glue that holds you together, that holds the cells together. So without it, the cells, they, they can't stay stuck together. You can't <laughs> heal a wound. Scurvy, it's when you're eating something crunchy or hard, you get all these little cuts in your gums. We evolved that way. The gum tissue is actually the fastest healing tissue in the body. Because within four or five hours, it can actually heal over some fairly grievous damage. If you don't have vitamin C, that those little nicks and cuts can't heal. So your gums start to rot, your teeth fall out. Then all sorts of other bad things are happening in your body and you die. Okay, so we understand you need vitamin C. We understand we need vitamin D. We can get it from sunlight. That's great. You know, vitamin Bs and these things. But we've moved away from the foods, the plants, the mushrooms, the nose to tail eating of the animals. And so there's a lot of nutrients. There are a lot of compounds we're no longer getting. And they don't harm us lacking them in the short term, but over the long term, what's happening. And then suddenly you see the diabetes, high blood pressure, depression, all these sort of things. What I've feel I've uncovered over the years is the closer to caveman life you can go. And I'm not talking walking around in skins and stuff to <laughs> run upon that, but there are certain things you can do to give back the nutrients, the long, I'll call them the long tail nutrients. If you know statistics, <laughs> the things that maybe you don't need right away, but if you're never getting it, it's going to lead to problems. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about one in particular. One of the plants I just absolutely love is Rosella hibiscus. And it's a African plant. It's a beautiful plant. It has these beautiful red flower buds. And it is absolutely fantastic for high blood pressure. Hmm. What it does is it increases the, the natural concentration of nitric oxide in the body. The nitric oxide works as a vasodilator. So it allows your blood vessels to relax, makes them larger. So now it takes less force to pump the blood through them. And I just find that, you know, why aren't they using this? And I can tell you why they're not using this. I'm using it. I got it. But uh, now we have to go back in time to 1836. And this is kind of at the dawn of chemistry. And in 1836, some chemists came up with a totally synthetic molecule called chloral hydrate. And what they found is this chloral hydrate knocked people out. It was the first time we had ever come up with a totally synthetic molecule that had a measurable effect on the human body. And the scientists said, hey, this is awesome. What else can we make? And this was kind of at the period when you were saying that arrogance was coming up, that humans, we can do better than nature. We can control nature. We can make all this stuff and 
free ourselves from the random chaos that is nature. And the pharmaceutical industry basically took off from there. The issue, well, part of it is if you are trying to medicate masses of people, you need mass-produced medicine. We got close to 8 billion people on the planet. Um, most of them, they're living a lifestyle that messes up their health and they just want a pill that they can take and keep doing what screwed up their life, but they don't suffer from it anymore. And that kind of sums up. I, I have nothing but love and respect for my fellow classmates and everyone who went into the pharmaceutical industry, but they are hamstrung by what does the consumer want? And what the consumer wants is they want to keep doing what they're doing and just pop a pill and, like I said, not suffer from it. <laughs> what I'm trying to do with Medicine Man Plant Co, the herbal primaries, I call them primaries. They're not supplements because a supplement is something you take eh, on a whim just as a supplement. But in my mind, these are primary components of our diet that we evolved with. And by not including them, we are suffering all these modern illnesses, the high blood pressure, the depression, the, you know, all these sort of things. So by bringing those back into the diet, you're maintaining and supporting the body the way we evolved to it. And you're giving it the long tail compounds that we need. But in addition to that, that's just the first step. Because what I really want to do is try and convince people to add more caveman activities into their mm -hmm. lifestyle to bring back the activities that we evolved in. And again, people think, uh, you know, dress in skins and chase down deer. No, 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 no. But here's one that really surprises people. Learn to juggle. One of the key things that took us from these weird little monkeys to us is we develop the ability to throw things. Our shoulders, our, the joints of the shoulders and the muscles are designed to very accurately and with great power throw things at stuff. Because that was one of our key to survivals. Because if we took this rock and took out that bunny rabbit, we got to eat the bunny rabbit. And there's good nutrients in the bunny rabbit. You know, if you eat the livers and the eyes and the brains and the lungs and, you know, all the, you know, the liver and all this stuff. And so these little monkey creatures started figuring out, ooh, throwing things at stuff. And they evolved to get better and better and better at throwing things. By getting better at throwing things, they had more nutrition, which allowed them to grow bigger, stronger, faster. And it was just kind of the cycle. To throw things... Like accurately throw a rock at a moving target, you have one sixteen hundredth of a second to release that stone. If you release it one sixteen hundredth of a second too early or too late, you miss the squirrel. So we got to this super fine motor control. And your brain is loving this. It's going, oh yeah, this is what I evolved to do. That's why like these axe throwing things and stuff and the cornhole and all these throwing games are really popular because our brains are going, yeah. But by doing that, our brain is getting all this mental calculation and exercise that it evolved to do. It's, it's way better than sitting there doing a crossword puzzle or you know, things like that, because it's, it's calculating, it, it, it's stimulation. And especially if you're doing it with people and things like that. And it, most adults now, they don't have a place where they can throw things. And if you have kids, usually one of the first things your kids learn is mom and dad don't like it when I throw things at stuff. Because I broke the lamp and the you know, this, that, and the other thing. But kids love to throw things at stuff. And like I said, down here in Texas, cornhole is really popular. You know, throwing the beanbags through the whole horseshoes, darts, all these throwing games is because our brain loves that. 
And it has been shown that the more time you spend throwing things at stuff, the stronger your brain is. It helps stave off uh, Alzheimer's and dementia and all these sort of things. So it's really good for the brain because it's doing what it evolved to do. Same with walking around outside on uneven ground. Nowadays, we have sidewalks and flat floors. We did not evolve on flat surfaces. We evolved on rocky, hmm. muddy, things like that. And so there's some really interesting Japanese studies on this. Uh, if you know anything about Japanese demographics, they're... Uh, population pyramid is inverted. They have a bunch of old people and very few young people. They saw this coming 30 years ago. So 30 years ago, they started a bunch of research. What can we do to maintain the health of people as they age so they're not a drain on the resources of the young? Because we got a lot of old people coming here. Mm -hmm. One of the key findings they found is the more time a person spends walking on uneven surfaces, the healthier they are mentally and physically. So when you're walking on an uneven surface, the brain, again, is constantly analyzing the surface and working to maintain your balance. So you're getting this you know, biofeedback between your brain and your body. Okay, you got to do this. The brain loves that. That's what it evolved to do, to walk on this uneven ground. To keep the body upright and maintain this, it uses the core muscles. And so the core muscles get stronger. There's a direct correlation between overall health and core muscle strength. So by walking on even ground, you're, you're activating the brain, making it stronger. You're making the core muscles stronger. You're also improving your sense of balance. If you slip, you're less likely to fall. This continues on into old age. Those that spent a lot of time walking on uneven, slippery, rock-filled, root-filled, trippy sort of you know, hikers and things like that um, are less likely to fall and break a hip when they're older because they have that, that muscle memory and that brain training to not fall. They may slip, but they can catch themselves because if you're over 70 and you fall and break a hip, that's a death sentence. Mm. That really is. Mm -hmm. And so just by spending more time walking around on uneven ground, you're less likely to break a hip when you're older. So it's things like that. You're giving the body back the evolutionary input that it evolved <laughs> to take. And that goes a long way towards maintaining the health. And that's my true goal is, you know, to lure you into this and think about how we evolved and how we're not doing a lot of that stuff. Mm. People are surprised to find out humans, Homo sapiens, have been through five ice ages. We are actually designed better for cold weather and cold than the warmth. So another thing I try and convince people to do, and this is where I get the most pushback is, don't take hot showers, take cold showers. Turn the water just a little bit so you're just getting cold and step in it. You're going <gasps> to, at first, but within 30 seconds or a minute, you, you don't notice it anymore. But this cold, the intermittent cold therapy, it's been shown to, well, for one thing, you have white fat. That's, you know, like the belly fat and the hip fat and the, what we consider in Western culture, the bad fat. Mm. We also have brown fat. And what brown fat is, instead of a big marshmallow, it's tiny little globules of fat with lots of iron in it. It's our emergency, we need it now, energy source. So the body adjusts how much brown fat and how much white fat it makes based on environmental input. One of the things this emergency energy source is needed is shivering. So if you're cold and you start to shiver, you're actually burning brown fat to do that. Mm. The body has reserved that. So 
that the glucose and the things you need to fight the saber-toothed tiger, that's still there, but it activates the brown fat. But the more cold you are, the more the body goes, mm, you know, this white fat, you seem okay on that. So let's turn it into the brown fat. And then if you ever need any sort of energy, it goes, well, you know, let's just use some of that. It's like the monster energy drink of the body in a way. <laughs> it says, all right, here's energy. Go at it. So just uh, cold showers, polar bear plunges and all that. The colder you get, the less time you have to expose yourself to it. Basically at 60 degrees, you need about eight hours of under 60 degrees. But as the temperature drops, the time you need to expose yourself to cause that trigger to make the brown fat shortens quite a bit. Cold shower in the morning, go outside in the winter, and then vitamin D. Nowadays, we think that the sun is this evil cancer-causing demon in the sky, must hide from sun. It's like, uh, guys, <laughs> no. One of the apps I really recommend to people, it's called D-Minder. And what it does, it's a free app. You can do a paid version, you get more powers, but it takes your location, the current weather, your particular skin type, and how much clothing you're wearing at the time. And it calculates how much time you have to expose yourself at that time in that location with that amount of clothing to convert the sunlight into the vitamin D that we And also mm. without burning. So it's just... When they told everyone to go inside at the beginning of the COVID, it's like, you are crippling everyone's immune system. And, yeah. You know, then yeah. go outside, get the vitamin D. They've shown that just going outside in nature increases the power of the immune system. And that makes sense when the cavemen, cave women, cave children were in the caves, they were fairly safe and secure. Then when they were out and about, that's when they were likely to encounter some sort of infection or wound or something. So over time, those that had the immune system that kind of dropped down some while they were inside in the cave and then raised up when they were outside, that meant that they had this energy available for something else when they're in the cave. So it actually was a, a, a evolutionary benefit at survival of the fittest. It actually worked better if the immune system dropped some in the secure location and then ramped up in this unsecure location rather than just staying ramped up all the time because it freed mm. the energy for the resources for other things. And so, yeah, we need to be outside just for mental, physical, spiritual health. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> completely agree. So much came up with what you just said. I think one thing I'll start with is that there's so much emphasis on modernity. You know, we are better right now than we've ever been in the past. And what you've just provided are examples of how, in some instances, clearly it is, but there are others where maybe we haven't been doing it better, quote unquote, in terms of health and well-being. I even remember in the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, as a historian, he said that actually when we were hunters and gatherers, we worked less hours to survive than we do in present day in a capitalistic world in an agricultural society. So I was curious about your thoughts on that. Okay. So there's a couple of things that I want to I want to go with this. So better now. If you look at mm -hmm. like overall lifespan, basically all we've done is allowed more babies to survive. If you look at the mm -hmm. skeletons and so forth, 
a lot of the adult skeletons that we found going back, you know, 200,000 years, we're making it up into their 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was a much higher baby mortality rate. You know, basically, there were a number of cultures that they wouldn't give a baby a name until it was three years old because why? It may not live. So if you had to point at a win, that would be, in the scheme of things, that would be the win. Hmm. That's what makes us better than them, better, better. That also means higher population. Going back to the, if you're going to medicate the masses, you need mass-produced medicine. Same with food. If you're going to have masses of people, the, there are a lot of people that argue the invention of agriculture was kind of where we screwed up because then we could store food for famine. We could maintain a larger population and all hell broke loose. At the same time, I love the fact that the theory that the reason we came up with agriculture is so that we could make beer. <laughs> they figured out if you have some wheat in some clay pot and some water and just open it in the air for a while, then shut it up. Suddenly this magical change occurs and it feels really good. And we need more of this wheat. And whoa, what if we just stick some of these seeds in the ground? What? Hey, we got more wheat. Beer! So there's a large body of research that suggests that we invented agriculture to make beer and it backfired horribly on us because here we are now. And see, the other thing, there are the people who like being outside in nature, hiking, backpacking, whatever. And there's a lot of people who like sitting on a couch, eating Doritos and watching things, going back to the lazy side of things. We are programmed to maintain or find ways to burn less calories because we don't know when our next calorie-laden meal will come. So yeah. one of the things that evolved is if you figure out how to survive well without burning calories, that's from a purely life approach, that's great. So we evolved to sit on a couch and watch TikTok videos you know, for a majority of the people. In my mind, so many problems come from evolution and what genetic mutation allowed us to survive better in these different ecosystems. And we had mm -hmm. a lot of good things come out of it and we had a lot of bad things come out of it. Like going yeah. back to the calories, we have basically taste buds in our gut that if we eat something especially high in glucose or high in sugar, our body goes, it sends signals to the brain saying, hey, 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 this thing this person is eating, eat as much of it as you can because we don't know when you're going to get it again. You know, devour that entire package of Girl Scout cookies because we may never get this again, you know, completely ignoring yeah. the eight packs of Girl Scout cookies. And, you know, and so it's hardwired into us to devour calories. And for mm. most of our 200,000 years, that made sense because we didn't know when we were going to eat calories. But now, because our amazing brain figured it out, we can get calories pretty much any time we want and way too many calories. And we love calories because calories are life. And our brain says, yeah, eat this because you don't know when you're going to get it again. And the brain hasn't caught up and understand that I got a pantry. 
there's food in here. You don't have to just devour everything you see. And uh, that's that's a big problem. Trying to overcome yeah. that. So, like our our biological instincts haven't haven't caught up. With <laughs> caught the, up exactly. So the you, external you, change. Yeah. So yeah. you got to do more stuff to get outside. These are the blue blocking glasses, so that you don't have the blue light. There's so many good studies on that. How it screws mm. up your sleep schedule and everything. And so I'm very careful with that. Let the sun fill the house with light and then let the darkness seep in and try and stay with those natural rhythms. Um, I know so many people now who are really drawn to this idea to just buy a big piece of land out in the middle of nowhere and start a community and just live off of it with people you love. So I have a little bit of hope yet uh, that there is some balance that we can achieve in the future in this area in terms of nature and also the realization. I spent a couple of weeks in Puerto Rico living on a growing community that was trying to live off of the land somewhat. I think maybe 15 to 20 percent of the food that we ate every day. We just had one big meal in the middle of the day was harvested like breadfruit, avocados, mm. bananas, um, things that I did not properly learn the name of. And it, it was just it, it took a lot of time even to harvest that much food. So I'm curious about your thoughts on these communities and how realistic they might be if you're also in the capitalistic society of having to earn money to pay for the land. And that's where it's hard. A lot of people have this idealistic view of living off the land and laying in a hammock and occasionally reaching up and picking a breadfruit or a banana. It's effort. Life requires effort, mm -hmm. you know? And I wanted to have a big piece of land, you know, I have like 40 acres with a little shack in it. I just lived there and I'm 54 now. And I figured out, no, I want a friend with a big place of land that I can go play on and let them deal with all the hassles of owning the land. And so I've worked very hard to come up with a number of friends that have big pieces of land. Thank you friends. Cause most people haven't grown up doing that and don't understand what it takes. And it's not mm -hmm. something a bunch, you know, 30 people have no clue. Suddenly you're showing up on this piece of land and we're going to make a utopian, you know, agricultural paradise. And two years later, the few that aren't riddled with pinworms and tapeworms are crawling out going, okay, can you hire me back? Um, slow steps. This is a yeah. multi-generational change. Mm. It can be done. And it would be great if it were done, but it's. Like he said, we're not ready for a complete changeover. Baby yeah. steps. Get the land, grow the food, look into permaculture, learn permaculture, build a food forest for your kids. And so a lot of the effort is done because like anything, 80% of the work will be done in the first 20% of the time. And that's a lot of work. To mm -hmm. learn how to care for goats, to learn how to make cheese, to learn how to tan hides, to learn how to blacksmith metal. You know, all this sort of stuff. So trying to do it all, uh-uh, <laughs> that's not going to work. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't start mm -hmm. and learn what you can and plant what you can, grow what you can, learn the skills and slowly build a community that way. Um, mm. Yeah. I like what you said, because I've never heard it really expressed that way before, that this is multi-generational. And I'm curious to know if you have a vision in mind of what it could actually be like, this future state where we found a balance. No, I don't. Not at our population. So 
I spend my weekends teaching people foraging and medicinal plants and so forth. And I've come to the realization very recently that I need to stop teaching just random people. My next duty is to train the next generation of instructors, the people who Mm. deeply understand this and can teach others. So my goal for starting in 2023 is figure out how to teach the next generation of foraging instructors. Because I, I get three requests a day for classes all over Texas and Louisiana and all this, and I can't do it anymore. I'm already, I've booked classes in December of 2023 already. Wow. And so there needs to be more of me so that this vision can grow and mm. understanding nature and Again, one of my secret reasons for doing that is to reconnect people to nature so they understand how fascinating and amazing and wonderful this world is. Because I think people are forgetting that because they have a door, they have a refrigerator, they have a light. They don't think about the tree and the flower and the grass. And if you don't have this awe of nature and this love of nature, it's not going to be first and foremost to protect it. I understand five generations from now, maybe then it will have permeated the entire culture. But, Mm. you know, you plant the seed and you nurture the seed as long as you can, get it strong enough to survive once you're no longer there protecting it It for the best. So education, curiosity, spreading the word. You're one of my gardens now. If you've allowed me to plant a seed... (laughs) And you and your viewers, uh, (laughs) you fell into my trap. (laughs) This actually segues perfectly. What's something everyone at home could start doing today if they wanted to get a little bit closer to the magic of nature? Like I said at the beginning, learn the plants around you. Watch the Mm -hmm. plants around you. Look at the bees interacting with the flowers. And this sounds really good. Hug a tree. You know, just get out and Mm. experience. Experience, look at nature, look at how the leaves are arranged on different plants. There's like different ways a leaf can be, depending on the species of plant, there can be opposite each other. They can be alternating. They can be whorls where they're just a circle around the stem and they can be opposite alternating. And just starting to realize it's just not the sea of green. Start looking at the details and you start going, wow, that's different. That's different. That's different. Because the more differences you see, the more complex you realize it is, but at the same time, it's all working together. There's probably Mm. some lessons in there. (laughs) Mm. Subtle. (laughs) But just watching the ebb and flow throughout the year, trees losing their leaves and what plants are popping up then. Maybe up in the north, there's not that many plants popping up, but down here in Texas, all year round, there's just a continuous wave and change as things roll through you start to understand the seasons and then you start looking at the moon and the stars and then you realize how small we are and then you're suddenly back in that whole caveman wow yeah nature is pretty damn impressive we know psychologically yes nature is complex and impressive and it's intimidating and it's like i could never learn that well try and you don't have to know mm. everything. No one knows everything, but just go. Oh. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing. I want to give you an opportunity to share anything you'd like to invite people to with your work and your business. Oh, okay. Yeah. So 
the Medicine Man Plant Co. That's ancient plants scientifically supported for modern issues. Like I said, it's, it's giving you back that long tail of nutrients that are no longer in our diet. And like right now I have 10 products like the brain pill. You can go on Amazon and you can get these capsules that have 50 of the best plants for your brain. And they have teensy little amounts of each. And it's like, that's doing nothing. So mm-hmm. my stuff, it's usually three to five plants and mushrooms with the amount of the plant based on scientific research for the average person of 165 pounds, the average American, to give them what science says will give them the effects they're looking for from the medicinal plant world. So 10 products there, brain, liver, uric acid, kidney stones, uh, serenity, blood pressure, blood sugar, all this. And then I'm starting uh, also in the first quarter next year, expanding this into dog products too. So medicine man and wolf. So after we're done here, I have to go and check with some research uh, at a facility on some different things for dog arthritis and dog anxiety, because those are big issues. I think we'll start there and just things like that. But using my scientific background and the plants we evolved with, to bring mm. back that, that long tail of support that we're missing from our diet. That's why I call them their herbal primaries, not supplements. So yeah, medicinemanplantco.com. Mm. On there, I give all the scientific data and I give the historical data and everything both combined. So if you're just want to be the hippie plants are magical, go for it. Yes, they are magical. And here's the perfect magical blend. If you're, <laughs> I need to see science. Here's the science. Check it out. <laughs> I got both bases covered there. They yeah. both have value. And from there, you can get everything else for you. Great. Everyone go check it out. And I ask every guest this question. If you could leave our listeners with one message, what would it be? Get outside. Go mm-hmm. wild. Get healthy. <laughs> get outside. Get outside. Get outside. Just walk around. Stand outside. Stand in a window where you're smelling. You know, just get outside. You'll be a better person. Mm. <laughs> Thank you so much, Meriwether. This has been a really fun conversation. I wish it could last another three <laughs> hours, but I shall set you free to go solve dark arthritis. <laughs> it's been so fun having ah, you. Thank my you. My pleasure. I thank you. Like I'm a preacher who loves a new pulpit. You gave me a pulpit to preach. So thank you very much. <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast and want to be kept in the loop on new episodes like it, follow us on Instagram at Abundantly Curious or join the email list at the link in our show description and show notes. And if you've got extra love to give, which we always welcome, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, when we open our minds, we open to new possibilities.